Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. We are all in unusual times at present, and so today we are going to do something unusual. Ordinarily, our FuturePod conversations are with guests you have met before in earlier interviews, but today you're going to hear from a conversation with people you have not heard from, but hopefully we'll get them back on for a longer interview later on. Jerome Glenn, Ted Gordon and Paul Sappho from the Millennium Project have just released a set of COVID scenarios for the American Red Cross. And we at FuturePod thought that these scenarios were important and hopefully useful for our listeners. And so we changed up how we normally do things in order to get this to you as fast as we could. Welcome to FuturePod, Jerome, Ted and Paul. Thank you. Thank you. To help our listeners out, can you introduce yourselves and also tell the listeners a bit about the Millennium Project? Okay. The Millennium Project is a futures think tank that's a little unusual. Everybody thinks their think tank is unusual, and we think we're unusual too, in the sense that we are distributed around the world. We're not all in one building. We have 67 what we call nodes around the world. A node is a group of institutions and individuals that connect local thinking of their country uh, with the global analysis on futures research. So when we do work like these COVID scenarios, we ask our nodes around the world, who knows the most about this topic that should give some input? The Millennium Project was created back in 1997 after a three-year feasibility study. Uh, in response to the year 2000 coming up, we thought we should give a gift from the previous millennium to the next millennium, which would be a system of thinking together about the future. Everybody talks about global this and global that, so you need a global think tank. So that's the idea of the Millennium Project. The Red Cross called us saying that there are so many uncertainties with this COVID situation. Uh, are you willing to help organize these uncertainties into several scenarios so we can get an overview? Because our people are, as they should be, working on the present tense so focused that they don't have time, really, to think it through about the economics and social stuff and all the rest of this stuff together. But somebody's got to do that. So they ask us to do that. So, so I put together a team. Ted Gordon is the co-founder of the Millennium Project. He also gave you the third stage of the Apollo rocket. So when someone says it doesn't take rocket science, I say, yes, it does. And there he is. <laughs> and then Paul Sapper, who was part of the conspiracy to get us to do this, was also a member of our planning committee and one of the leading uh, features in Silicon Valley. So I worked on scenario one, and Ted worked on scenario two, and Paul worked on scenario three. We did this with input from questionnaires, we call a real-time Delphi, uh, that we sent around the world. We had four of them, one just for U.S. to begin with on what's the medical health situation, and collected that information. And then what's the economic, social, uh, economic situation in the U.S.? Then the third real-time Delphi asked around the world, what's the global health medical situation? And then the fourth one looked at 
what is the global economic and social psychosocial social situation. So we had volumes of stuff that came in that your listeners can read those volumes of stuff if they want, because it's in the appendix of our report. Uh, I'll very briefly mention scenario one, then I'll turn it over to Ted on scenario two, and then Ted can turn it over to Paul on scenario three. Scenario one is basically a, a scenario that says we have good decisions and we have bad decisions, and we have good luck and we have bad luck. And we sort of mix the best case and the worst case to, together. So it's like a middle-of-the-road forecast. It has a lot of detail. Each of these scenarios is around 10 pages uh, with a lot of cause and effect links and decisions that you can see in there. And some of the key lessons that came out of this for us is that putting all of your faith and all of your hopes on a vaccine to solve the problem is unwise. Averaging together, there's a lot of different vaccines, as you know. Uh, and if you average them together, loosely speaking, uh, an educated guess was around maybe 55% effective. That's not great. And if like maybe half the world or, or so gets it, that means you don't get to herd immunity yet. So we have to focus on still on the individual, uh, how the individual washes the hands, wears the mask, keeps a separation, doesn't have in a crowd of, of you know so many people indoors. So it's still on us, not just on the scientists to solve this problem. There's a lot of scenarios in there, but I don't want to go too much further. I'd like to turn it over to Ted for number two. Well, scenario two was a negative scenario. It was a scenario that was not balanced. It went all in the negative direction, told the story from the standpoint of a of a narrator speaking in early January 2022. He looked back on 2021 and uh, looked forward to 2022. And what he saw was not pleasant at all. From his viewpoint in January 1st, 2022, he saw that 600,000 people in the United States had died from the virus, and probably many more than that, uh, because Indirect deaths, people who did not go to the hospital because they were worried about contracting the disease, for example, are not counted in that. So the guess is maybe three quarters of a million people by January 1st, 2022, were dead because of this virus. Worse than that, the hopes for a rescue had evaporated. Look at all the things that we thought might save us that didn't. Hot temperatures of the summer did not slow the rise of the cases. Young people proved not to be immune. People who were asymptomatic could still be carriers of the virus. It doesn't go away on its own like a common cold. Flu shots didn't protect us against the virus as we thought they might. And all the cockamamie cures, some of which were promoted by our president, didn't work. No chloroquine, no oleander leaves, and infection once and recovery did not guarantee immunity. Effective vaccines also are further away than we thought they might be because the virus proved to be a mutating target. Distribution to 7 billion people around the world was an enormous problem, not solved by January 1st, 2022. 
And a little factor like you got to store this stuff at 50 degrees centigrade, minus 50 degrees centigrade, or else it deteriorates. There are no ways known to do that simultaneously around the world. Long-term side effects are generally being discovered as we move along, and those long-term side effects affect the whole body. Intellectual fog, for example, heart disease, for example, joint pains, fatigue, birth defects for children of pregnant mothers, hypertension, the list goes on. Some people think that eventually everybody will get the disease and they'll either survive and have immunity for the rest of their lives or die. But like the indigenous natives of, of the North America, when Columbus and the conquistadors in South Americans and Central America landed in the New World in the 16th century, the natives died off from smallpox, measles, influenza, and whooping cough, all viruses waiting to attack the natives. And in this case, we are the natives. The problems that we explored in scenario two were not confined only to the medical problems, but also to the economic, because the two are very closely intertwined. Unemployment up from, it was only 3.6% in 2020, but it hit 15% uh, by the spring of 2020, and it's remained above 10% ever since. Businesses closed, bankruptcies meant there were no jobs, laid off workers, had no jobs to go back to. Employment by states and cities was, was cut to limit deficits in the urban areas. Garbage piled up. Global warming, which was on some people's minds, was given a lower priority. This economic tsunami occupied our thinking from day to day. The government programs topped seven trillion, with a T, seven trillion dollars. Some people in Congress said, Enough borrowing is enough. Someday we'll have to pay it back. And the, even the largesse of Congress was cut off. Some businesses just closed shop and the owners walked away. They were called zombies. Banks that had weak balance sheets couldn't afford losses associated with liquidating borrower companies. So they just gave them more money and kept them alive, at least on paper. But someday, maybe the year 2022, uh, we have to meet the results of that bubble. We cannot see how to get out of this problem. Middle-income people are joining food lines. Inflation, thought by some to be not part of the problem, has now increased. And food scarcity is a problem because the people who produce it are not able to do that anymore. They're out of work as well. And the, the, the most difficult problem, or one of the most difficult problems that, that we see on the economic side is that the people who are least able to support, to, to survive in the downturn, are not equally distributed. They fall on the, the problems fall on the least able to withstand the downturn. They've been affected the most. And through an unfortunate twist of fate. We have simultaneous misfortunes, fires, locusts in Africa, hurricanes, 
and the effect of each of these is greater than the sum of each considered separately. The resources uh, that are provided to charitable organizations are stretched to the limit. Homelessness has increased by 50%. Terrorists see this as an opportunity. Uh, from what we've seen, they are stockpiling the virus, able to reintroduce it once again to a recovering world, should we get to that point. As I look at 2022, public disquiet is rumbling. There's finger pointing all around, attempts to escape responsibility. People move from areas of high infection to low infection. They're often not welcome there. We see things changing and people are scared. It's not only the pandemic, it's everything at once. And we don't even have a silver lining in mind. We can't see our way out of this. What's the target? How do we, how do we deal with it? An outcome, what is an outcome that we can hope for other than survival and returning to the past? Yeah. So um, I missed a meeting and got assigned the positive scenario, <laughs> uh, which I refer to as the rainbows and unicorns scenario, given that we were doing all this in the depths of the pandemic. And by the way, just an important point for the listeners is that creating a scenario is not making a prediction. Creating a scenario set like this is about exploring possible outcomes and the logic that gets us from here to there. So we're not going to look back on these two years from now and say which scenario was right or which scenario was wrong or who predicted what in the right way. This is about making sure that we've covered the full range of, of uncertainty. So that's why we also have a positive scenario. The gist of the positive scenario is this, that we solve this crisis not through some silver bullet like a vaccine or even silver buckshot. Uh, we solved it with the tools that we had had around us all along. That what background to this scenario is that this is not an epidemiological pandemic. It's a failure of politics and policy and active interference with all the systems we had in place to fix this. To use a metaphor, making an internal combustion engine automobile run is very simple. You have three things. You need air, so you need oxygen, you need fuel, and you need spark. And all the other complexity in that vehicle is making sure those three things arrive in the right order at the right time. Well, our global system, and in particular the United States, was a little bit like a car that, for whatever reason, all the pieces couldn't arrive at the same time. And so all the forces that could have solved this quickly were ending up interfering with each other. And then there's the darker dimension. You can think of this as a boulder that you're trying to push off a cliff. And there are a whole bunch of people, health professionals, who are trying to push the boulder off the cliff and away from us as quickly as they can. And then unfortunately, there are people on the other side of the boulder trying to keep them from pushing it off the edge. What happened in the optimistic scenario is events combined towards the end of this year and the start of next year to shock people into collaboration and cooperation. And it created an environment where we were able to make the most of all the systems we already had in place with public health and with the arrival of 
innovations that eventually arrived like vaccines and the like. So it covered all the obvious things that we had Washington policymakers finally getting serious about lessons learned from earlier pandemics and applying them here as a matter of policy and not politics. A weary public gives up on posturing and normalizes virus-related behavior, and then everything starts falling into place. And looking back from 2022, we realize the one piece that is missing that we need to work on for the future is social cohesion, that the shift from mass media to personal media has created a society where we're so fragmented apart and the cost is decreased social cohesion. Sadder but wiser, we all looked back and said, gosh, we could have actually stopped this thing before it happened if only we had learned to stand on each other's shoulders instead of each other's toes. So thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. That's interesting. Can I ask you, just I'm just interested because while they are, and as Paul said, these are not forecasts, but they're, they're scenarios driven by a set of logics, are there fundamental decisions upon which the scenarios kind of pivot, the sort of notion of the sliding door that if, that if you know, X didn't happen, then you know, we wouldn't have seen Ted's scenario or we might have moved towards Paul. Are there kind of lessons that the scenarios set have for decision makers right now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's been leadership. Uh, take a look at Taiwan. Taiwan has got under 10 million deaths, under 10 deaths. They had a bunch of infections and they're, you know, got airplanes going in and out and so forth. There are many countries that did a better job than the United States. Uh, the United States had a leader that was denying this sort of stuff, delayed uh, stuff, and did not provide coherence. Whereas you have some of the Asian countries that did provide coherence, South Korea and so forth. And they use contact tracing apps, and they use a lot of things that they could quarantine and, and follow up on things very fast. So they had a much better response because they had better leadership. Well, I want to hit a point that uh, Peter asked about earlier. How do you use stuff like this? Uh, you may not believe it. Uh, and it certainly is, as uh, Paul suggested, not a forecast. But it is useful in the following way. If I were running an organization and concerned about effects of the pandemic, I would lay these three scenarios out in front of my staff. And I'd say, we don't need to believe either of any of these. They are an expression of what might be. Let us think about policies that we would enact in each of these to accomplish our goals and to minimize the impact. What would we do? And if the staff around me made suggestions about policies that were common to all three scenarios, I would say, well, those are very good bets because it doesn't matter how things turn out, either on the good side or the bad side, these are things to do. So let's figure out how to do them. And for others, I'd say, let's prepare in a way that will minimize the impact should that happen. And for the good side, that will enable us to capture the, all the good that's there to be captured. So these are contingencies. These are back, backdrop contingencies uh, that enable us, without predicting a future, to understand the range of things we must do, no matter what the future turned out to be. 
the way to judge these scenarios at the end is not whether they were right or wrong, but whether the eventual reality fell within the the cone of possibility that they laid out. And that, by the way, is why the scenario set also has a set of wild cards, low, lower uncertain probability events that if they happen could be dramatic game changers. So it's important to look at the wild cards as well as the scenario when come back to those. But the other thing is to think about the decision points in the scenario. For example, as we were developing it, we and getting feedback from folks, in scenario three, I had the statement that the reaching of half a million deaths in the United States in January would be enough to finally shock the public into action. And what ensued was some questions of, would the public be shocked with half a million deaths? Maybe that's not enough to push us into an optimistic situation. And one event that already happened is in the first draft of scenario three, we had a description that the precipitating event was the president of the United States contracted COVID, was in the hospital and in a coma. Uh, We took that out because in the review, reviewers said it's overly political and it interferes with people considering the scenario. So we removed it. And then, of course, when president of the United States ended up in the hospital, I thought to myself, oh, darn, I should have left that in because we'd look prescient. Of course, it wouldn't count because the scenarios weren't public yet. But then as I watched events unfold over the three days following, I realized, in fact, my assumption that a hospitalized president would be enough to shock people into right thinking was wrong, that we now know that even a hospitalized president is not enough to cause Americans to align. So as one reads these scenarios, think about the, the hidden decision points that where the road can fork one way or another. Uh, that is implicit in the events that are listed. And these are American scenarios, and and scenarios to be useful for decision makers should be uh, best developed in their own context. But the important thing, these are American scenarios, because, I mean, who wants to write a set of scenarios for New Zealand? They've managed this so well that it'd be a really boring set of scenarios. (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Again, my question is, how do other jurisdictions and other countries, I mean, these scenarios are useful the way Ted described for discussion generally about, well, you know, these are possible scenarios in America, they could be scenarios here. But if, in fact, other jurisdictions wanted to do more localised and culturally and, and sort of you know, situationally relevant to them, how might they, they use the Millennium Project and these scenarios to, to actually do that? Well, uh, some of the Millennium Project nodes around the world uh, have already sent copies of the final report, uh, which had the scenarios as well as how it was done and all the appendix I mentioned before about the the questionnaire responses to the various Red Crosses and Red Crescents and ministries of health in their countries and say, well, would you like to do it? So that's just beginning as we speak. Uh, However, if you're in a country where that's not the case, you can download this scenario, read it yourself to see what you think. Uh, and if you think it's okay, then you contact the Red Cross or Red Crescent or other relief organizations and their Ministry of Health 
and see, or, or you, I would, would you be interested? Now, some countries have already, uh, Finland has already done some of these scenarios already, but not all countries have. So if you're in a country that hasn't done them, you might then share the, the, the text with them and say, okay, that's what the Americans did. We have different assumptions. We're in a different situation. So how would we do it? And uh, we have said in the report that if, if a country is beginning to do that and they want to have any of us sort of helping out along the way, we're happy to do that. Uh, but the scenarios themselves are enough, I think, for a, for a team to be put together of the key players in a country to create their own scenarios. Uh, and we would be happy to help. And the scenarios are in, are in languages other than English, too. Yeah. Well, on, on the, uh, they're being translated right now. They're in Spanish, Chinese coming up, Korean sons and stuff. However, if people go to the Millennium Project website, Millennium, two L's and two N's, hyphen project.org, they go there, you'll notice in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little rectangle that has language in it. So you can, what you can do is you can look at the scenario and you can click on the language that you want. So you can have them, or you, if you don't want to use ours, you can still use Google Translate <laughs> directly. And then you can edit those and then share them with the people in your country. These three scenarios uh, that, that you just heard are longitudinal. They are time ticking away and how things develop over time, the way you tell a story. That's what they're designed to do. That's the way they're presented. But let me suggest to you that there is a different cut at it. There might be little, one, one person I know suggested like raisins in a bread pudding giving flavor to the bread pudding. There might be little scenarios that cut across, little things that happen that make a big difference uh, and they're not captured in this linear time description. Uh, for example, uh, I wrote one vignette which we've got to revisit at some time, which said, suppose we really really find, and I think this is true, that older people are much, much, much more susceptible than younger people. That's I think that's a fact. That's not just an assumption for the scenario. I think it's been validated. So what does that mean? And what I wrote in the, in the vignette was the advent of age discrimination as a result of the scenario, the case, a hypothetical case to the Supreme Court in which older people object to being excluded from restaurants uh, because of their age. Restaurants take the, take the position, given the fatigue that is, is undoubtedly going to get worse, given the economic fatigue, they take the, the position, hypothetically, that older people are not welcome. If you're young, you can come in and have lunch, you can come in and have dinner, but if you're over the age of what, 75, don't please don't come in. Well, the older people get pissed off at that and take it to court. What do you mean you're just, you've, you've uh... well, so anyhow, we set that situation up in the, in the uh, scenario, the little, the cross-cutting scenario, the vignette, and uh, explore it. It's a possibility. It gives flavor to the scenario that is not captured in the time series, but it may end up being one of the most important aspects of it. Yeah, and, and one would imagine, Ted, the same thing too. We could have economic ventures that limit access to the young. Yes. And, and so we don't want you 
you know, potentially so you finish up creating premium markets. They could they could be everything from aged care to to holiday and vacation um, places that won't allow you know, anybody under the age of sixty allowed in. It sets children against their parents, parents against the grandparents, society against aging. We urge people who read these scenarios to think about those kinds of cross-cutting developments uh, that uh, are not brought out in the time series treatment. There's there are undoubtedly thousands that I haven't mentioned or thought of or no one has, and they will be the elements that really make the future. One of the advantages of writing a scenario, a real scenario, between the present and a future condition with a bunch of cause and effect links and decisions is that you find out some things don't make sense and you got to scratch your head and you learn something along the way. When I was doing uh, scenario one, it became clear to me there was not enough people to do contract tracing. It just didn't. So in the scenario, to be, make it plausible, you had to explain how you're going to do that. So a bunch of stuff had to be research to figure out how to fill in that gap. Another one is a psychological impact is going to be much bigger than people think, especially if this thing continues on. I mean, the, 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 the despair involved uh, and the psychological need for psychologists to help out, not only the health workers that are in despair and depressed, but the general public. So, so just as we're paying a lot of attention to the virus, we're going to also have to spend a lot of attention and preparation the psychological well-being of people who've got to juggle between daycare centers and their job or just staring at the wall for 24 hours a day. So thanks to, to Jerome, Ted and Paul for this, this work, which is really on behalf of all of us. We, and I really do appreciate that you've made the information available in a timely fashion and also in an accessible fashion. And I encourage anybody there who's interested and think and sees use in this to certainly reach out, use the material, and also see if there's interest in their area to generate their own. But uh, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks, thanks for participating. Thank Our you. Pleasure. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.